When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, welcome back. So I want to start off today's podcast with a couple of rhetorical questions uh, to really drive home a point. There's a lot of discussion right now in the mainstream financial uh, media, uh, analysts and, and, and uh, traders and, and, and managers of funds and, and, and certainly the markets themselves, especially the stock market, are really showing a, a very high level of optimism. Uh, I would argue it's an optimism that ignores a heck of a lot of negative news, which is most of what we're actually dealing with right now is negative news, and mostly focuses on you know forward-looking projections and statements about what the reopening of the U.S. economy may look like. I think there's this notion that you know everything went from normal to lockdown mode pretty quick, and that it's going to get back to normal relatively quick. Maybe similar timeline, maybe a little bit more drawn out. But that is reason enough to be bullish right now, bullish on stocks, bullish on the U.S. economy, despite the fact that um, we're, we're dealing with jobless claims in the last four weeks, numbering it over 22 million, despite the fact that China just re- recorded its first uh, quarter of, of economic decline. And it was a big decline in terms of GDP uh, in, in decades Right. Despite the fact that, well, well, let's just start with these rhetorical questions and, and you'll kind of see where I'm heading with this. First of all, question number one, in our lifetimes here in the United States, have any of us experienced an economic shock of this scale, of this magnitude? In terms of reopening the U.S. economy, are there any states right now that have reopen their economy. I understand some never fully closed it down in the first place. No, none fully did, but I mean, none really, some never ordered these, these stay-at-home orders, etc. But But those that did, how many of them have reopened to date? How many of them have a plan to reopen? How many large and very, you know, every state's important, but, but the ones that are the big economic players, a lot, a lot of eastern seaboard, um, um, states, you know, some of the Midwest, you know, Illinois, Michigan, Ohio, um, certainly Florida, California, Texas, of those states, how many of those in terms of cases, in terms of testing, in terms of plans, look as though they will be ready to reopen on May 1st? And, and if they do open, is there any evidence to suggest that it may be premature or that they may have to put some of those restrictions back in place? Globally speaking, how many countries have attempted to reopen their economy? And for those that have, how many have had to put some of those restrictions back in place because of second or third peaks, uh, resurgence of, of COVID-19, etc.? Moving on, um, in terms of jobs, economic activity that has been lost over this time period of weeks and months, uh, 22 million, as I said, over four weeks how many of those jobs are still going to be there six months from now? Six months from now, how many of those 22 million plus whatever other jobs are lost in the meantime in the ensuing weeks, 
how many of those will come back six months from now? We're talking roughly, you know, October of this year. How about 12 months from now? Is there a possibility that some of those small businesses or large businesses may never actually go back to work because they were already in a tough financial position at the beginning? How many businesses will decide that, you know what, we, we realized that A, we need to probably cut costs because of the economic reality we live in, but B, maybe we're also kind of cutting fat. Some of these employees aren't necessarily necessary, um, again, considering the economic situation we're in. How many will um, make that decision and, and may not rehire as many as they laid off initially? Another question here. Um, if they, when we do reopen the economy... Will consumer behaviors, their consumption ultimately, be changed? Or will it be pretty much the same? Or will people be so optimistic about this massive slowdown, the fact that many of them will be out of work in the interim, many of them may never get back to work, and if they are, they might be working in an industry that's not going to be open for, for many, many months. How many of them will be so excited that everything's slowly opening up again that they'll consume like crazy? How many individuals um, will be worried that they may lose their house in the next 12 months? How many of them may be worried that they may not go back to work in the next 12 months because they know that their, their industry or their corporation is unlikely to rehire them? What type of inflation occurs when a central bank chooses to print money by the trillions of dollars over a time period of only a couple months? What type of inflation and, and economic impact occurs when a, a nation decides to increase its level of debt um, by upwards of, of 10 or 20 percent in the span of a, a single year? Um, does an increasing amount of debt in an economic system bode well for a strong secular recovery, a secular growth period? Um, when a secular growth period that's gone on for over 10 years or roughly 10 years encounters a slowdown, regardless of the catalyst, pandemic or otherwise, um, is it reasonable to, to suggest that um, maybe the ensuing recession is, or depression, um, is going to last longer than the, than the catalyst sticks around for. Um, in the past, have there been countries, empires, global reserve currencies, that over a roughly 80-year you know, time period um, serve their usefulness and have been devalued significantly and, and the empire, the, the country that uses that currency, has undergone a period of significant contraction in terms of influence, power, economic activity. And, a follow-up question, do those types of time periods lend themselves to economic, but, but also societal, geopolitical, and political upheaval? Okay, that's seven minutes roughly of, of rhetorical questions there for, that I want to start off with, Right. Uh, you guys understand where I'm going with this. And, and if you answered you know, to those questions, 
uh, maybe in, in not in the I, I get it. I'm leading here. I'm leading with those questions. Some of those were much more leading than than others. Some of those maybe would have been toss ups, right? If we're not talking about the United States, you could say that hey, you know, some of us lived in gosh, uh, Europe, right? Back in in the forties during World War Two. Um, you know, parts of the Soviet Union, right? Those are pretty big economic shocks that happened decades ago. For the United States, I think it, it's it's hard to argue that there has been an economic shock this large since, I would argue, probably the Civil War. I think this is going to be bigger. The scale thus far has, has been larger and more severe, more intense than the Great Depression. I would argue maybe the Civil War. This is the worst since the Civil War. Now, We'll know in retrospect, hopefully. Um, but but that would be my answer to that question. I think this is far worse than what we went through here in the United States in terms of World War II, in terms of Pearl Harbor, in terms of, of anything that's occurred since then, right? Um, towards the end, I was asking questions about you know inflation, impacts of inflation, higher and higher debt, um, and you know potentially the end of the U.S. dollar as a global reserve currency. Not next day, not tomorrow, not next week, not next month, but but pretty soon here, um, this higher and higher level of debt as well as currency devaluation that's eventually going to occur, you know, is that going to lend itself to economic, societal, political, and geopolitical upheaval? I think the answer to that is, generally speaking, yes. You know, societies tend to be the most stable when economies are strong, political systems are uh, resilient and, and popular and trustworthy. That's certainly not what we've had for a while now, um, but but now we're dealing with an economic picture that is worsening, much much worse, and those situations do tend to lend themselves to um, societal breakdown or societal massive societal changes. Right? We don't need, necessarily need to go to straight you know societal breakdown, um, Mad Max scenario or something right away, but certainly changes and, and geopolitical problems when when. Governments, when when countries take wild swings in terms of their political alignment, that often lends itself to geopolitical problems, alliances being broken, um, conflicts, hot wars, trade wars, currency wars, all the above. And 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 I think everything I'm talking about here really flies in the face of what's being said in the market. And and I get it. You know, there's one person even from from what was it? Dark Horse Capital, I think the name I I could find the uh exact name of the the uh firm. It's it, you know, what Zero Hedge calls one, you know, one of the most bearish hedge funds in the world. That recently has sort of changed to some extent their their approach to this market. Um because they're starting to have a feeling that maybe we shouldn't be fighting the Fed. Maybe we should be uh, here. I can find here. Maybe we should be, you know, basically buying risk assets because we believe that even though the economy, here we go, Horseman Global. Um, this is their CEO, Russell Clark. Uh, maybe we should be buying what the Fed is going to pump up with liquidity, with credit growth, with inflation, because I mean they do believe we're moving into a high inflationary environment. Let's take advantage of that rather than just being uber bearish. Right, um, and I get that whole argument. Right, I've I've said it how many times on this podcast myself. You know, the, the stock market over the past ten years has been nothing more than a product of credit growth and liquidity. 
a little bit of economic growth at some periods along the way, obviously, but but nothing to justify the massive move up in terms of, of the valuations of these stocks of the U.S. and to some extent the global stock market. A lot of it's been central bank and government driven, driven by a man, mania, right? Um, and, and so I get that argument this time around, but... If you're going to make that argument, you also have to acknowledge I, – I, what I don't get is when somebody says stocks are going up because the, everything's going back to normal. The U.S. economy is going back to normal. Everything's going to be fine. This was, this was a crazy couple of weeks, but we made it through it, and we're on the other side. Come on, another 10-year bull market here, 10-year uh, economic expansion here. I mean could you imagine actually holding to that viewpoint? It just doesn't – it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. Furthermore, there's this notion that everything's getting back to normal quickly here from this COVID-19 business. And I think what we have to do is, is you know, if we're looked at the economy here as an aggregate, we have to separate the direct effects of this COVID-19 lockdown. I'm talking about states and the federal government and cities and counties saying you cannot do business. And, and you cannot travel or you cannot do this. You cannot stay, you know, you have to stay home, et cetera, for the most part. We have to separate that from the, the rest of the economic slowdown. And what I mean by that is there's predictions out there that this is going to be 18-month. Wow, I, I hope that this is not an 18-month drawn-out situation of lockdown, unlockdown, lockdown again. You know, I... It's going to be many more months, though, than I think what many in the market are expecting right now. And, and the, again, this isn't an argument about is this legit or not? Is this a hoax? Is this whatever? I'm, I'm just going off of the facts of what we're dealing with, right? I'm just – regardless of what you think the facts of the virus are, that doesn't change what how governments and states have and, and will continue to treat as the facts, right? We have to deal with this – in reality, we can't just make up our own reality and say the economy is going to get back to normal because I think the virus is this or that. Well, well, guess what? I mean, that doesn't mean a thing to Donald Trump or Anthony Fauci or or um, uh, Steve Mnuchin or or Andrew Cuomo or any of them, right? It doesn't mean a thing to them what you think, right? Ultimately, they're going off of their own. Facts, And if you think it's part of a greater conspiracy, great. It doesn't change the fact that they're going to do what they're going to do in terms of their economic, you know, reopening plans, right? Um, I digress. Going back to what I'm saying here, though, is that I don't think it's going to be like an 18-month process, but it's not going to be like a four-week process either. It's not like economies start to reopen on May 1st and by June 1st, guess what? Everything's back to normal. No, I mean, the entire summer is going to be different. Ball games probably won't be a thing. Concerts probably aren't going to be a thing. Large meetings of that, you know, of the similar scale of hundreds and thousands, tens of thousands, not going to be a thing. I, too early to say what it's going to be like in the fall time. I think I don't know. It's hard to say. Uh, depending on will we have a better vaccine? Will we have better testing? Will we have better control? Are people going to finally start wearing masks more? It's hard to say. And and I'll admit I took a while to wear a mask myself. Um, Partly because I wasn't going out for a while, but I, you know, even when I would, I wouldn't wear it necessarily. Um, even though I had bought some a long time ago, back in January. Uh, but but going back to, the, I mean, are people going to change their behaviors and whatnot? And, and, I mean, this is going to be a long, drawn out process. This is going to be a four week reopening and everything's back to normal. This is going to be several months. But then again, as I said, we have to separate the COVID nineteen business 
from the broader economic impact. Again, going back to some of those rhetorical questions I was saying, how many people won't be going back to work because the job's not there for them anymore? Some of these industries are going to take a very, very long time to recover in terms of demand. The cruise ship industry, right? I saw an article yesterday about how you know cruise ship bookings for 2021 are, are really high. And honestly, that's probably a just, a, I haven't checked the prices, but I would guess a product of very low prices. People think cruise ships are a bargain now, but long term. The, the outlook, I think, looks pretty terrible, as does it for, for I think, airlines for a while. Um, gosh, I saw numbers yesterday that right now airline traffic is in the region of something like, or I think it was like T, people passing through TSA screening, is in the area of like 5 to 10% of its normal. That's crazy, right? Okay, but, but I mean, restaurants, those that aren't going to go under this time, during this time period, they're going to struggle for a while. Right, hotels will, resorts will, the hospitality industry, all those things will struggle for a while. How about you know? My wife was was yesterday. She says that we're driving. She says, "Can you imagine having a wedding planned for June, and you don't know what's going to happen?" And I was like, "Well, yeah. What if you had like a couple dozen wedding planned for for the entirety of the summer because you're a caterer or a wedding planner or a photographer or whatever else? I mean, uh, uh, maybe you're, you you run a a, um, you own a, a property that hosts things like weddings and, and other other events. I mean, that's you're going to be waiting a while before you can probably open up and start doing those things again, right? But again, a lot of there, there's the economic impact beyond just this. COVID, we have to start thinking outside just this COVID nineteen framework, though. That people's bottom line, their savings have probably or will be depleted when this is all said and done. Um, their purchasing behaviors are unlikely to just go back to normal. I mean, maybe right now with stimulus checks going out, yeah, people are buying more. I get it, right? But six months from now, I, I don't foresee us getting a stimulus check every month. You know, maybe it's going to change depending on who wins in the fall time in terms of presidential election, but, but probably not this year, right? People's Purchasing behaviors are going to change. Maybe not everyone's, but a good chunk of the population's, right? People's outlook on the economy has become far more conservative and fearful. Yeah, there's going to be people that are always optimistic, but but those are the people that I think their optimism is ultimately going to be crushed. By, uh, Simon Black, I think it was, wrote about this recently in Zero Hedge. He talked about a, a, Vietnam, a Vietnam vet, Vietnam POW, and he was talking about you know people that lived in these POW camps, the ones that didn't make it oftentimes were the ones that were always optimistic. We'll get out by Christmas. We'll get out by Easter. And then they wouldn't, you know, they, they kept being optimistic and their optimism was crushed. And, and they, they were the ones that didn't make it. The people that were realistic about it were the ones that oftentimes made it through that time period of many years. I think it's a similar story. Not that people are necessarily going to, you know, commit suicide, but, but you get what I'm saying that that optimism ultimately is going to turn to, I think a lot of really deep pessimism about things because this isn't just going to be back to normal in four weeks or eight weeks or 12 weeks. I mean, this is going to be a long drawn out process. And again, we have to separate it from just the COVID-19 framework. Yeah, there's, there's the potential, but, but even if, even if there isn't a massive reinfection wave in the latter half of the year, in the fall time, when kids go back to school and college, et cetera, even if that doesn't happen, and of course, you know, the, the weather is changing, temperature, humidity, all that. Even if that doesn't happen, which I think the risk is pretty high that it will, but even if it doesn't, 
we're still dealing with this additional um, problem of a secular growth cycle that has been halted in its tracks. Like, like it's this isn't like a train derailing. This is like a train running into a mountainside. Just one day it was going at top speed, one moment, and the next moment it's stopped. I mean, it's not a perfect analogy because our entire economy is still to some extent running, but you get what I'm saying here, that it was a sudden stop. And it's not, we're not just going to put it back in the tracks and, and pretend everything's fine. No, this is going to play out over many, many months, extending far beyond this framework of COVID-19 and lockdowns and, and everything related to that. This was a secular growth cycle that was stopped on a dime. And this is a secular growth cycle that has to move into its normal cyclical uh, slowdown, contraction. Right? That's normal. It's a healthy part of the business cycle of the economic cycle. Boom and bust. Now, the Fed and the U.S. government, like they did 10, 12 years ago, will try and prevent that bust as hard as they can. But this is something, this is going to be much, much more difficult than the Great Recession, much more difficult than a typical slowdown. And, and I'm not convinced that they're going to be able to, to do it. Now, they, they can try very hard. You know, as Michael, uh, what is it, Michael Every, I think, said in, in, from Rabobank in, uh, in one of his uh, recent articles shared over in Zero Hedge. Um, let them eat stocks, <laughs> right? Sort of parodying that that infamous, you know, quote by Marie Antoinette. You know, kind of this epitome of of um, detachment from broader society and the struggle of the common man. Let them eat cake, right? Let them eat stocks. That's you know, but I think there, there's some truth to that. That they're going to do everything they can to to prop up markets, but that's not what. We need, I mean, we need the whole economy propped up. And you can't just prop up an economy that, you know, on the other hand, you're also saying, you know, don't engage in economic activity because of lockdowns. I mean, it just doesn't it doesn't work that way, right? So big slowdown coming here. And uh, I think it's going to last for a long time. And again, I I don't know. I, I, I'll probably be talking about this weeks, months from now, kind of ranting and raving against the mainstream consensus of everything goes back to normal buy stocks, etc. Um, but I don't know. It just doesn't it doesn't make sense to me for everything to just go back to normal and this is all said and done. Right? There our normal has been changed. Right? Um, this is going to be something that's gonna be drawn out over many decades. And you know the other thing I want to quickly talk about here before I let you guys get on with your lives is uh so so back in, gosh, back in January, in February, uh, Chris Martinson, Peak Prosperity, one of the guys early on that, that really nailed this whole COVID-19 business. Of course, back then it was, you know, the 2019 NCOV. He, uh, he commonly would repeat this phrase and actually found, a, found it online. I, you know, saved the picture. Um, and, and it was re- re- in reference to truth. Now, I'll find it here for you because I think it's important. That, that we remember this phrase and, and here just a second. All right. All truth passes through three stages. First, it is ridiculed. Second, it is violently opposed. Third, it is accepted as being self-evident. Arthur uh, Schopenhauer, uh, 
lived back in the 1700s and 1800s. Really a great phrase. And I think it applies to so much of what we're going through right now. First of all, the spread and the, the impact of this virus. Early on, people said, you know, this is, this is nothing. This isn't even bad as a flu. Come on, shut up. Like, I heard the same story about Ebola and heard it even about SARS. I heard it about H1N1, the bird flu, Zika. This is, you know, ridicule it. Well, then I think there's a bit of violent opposition, not maybe with like guns and swords, but like, no, like, stop saying this. It's not bad. Like, don't listen to these crazy people over here. Go on with live, with your, live your lives, go on vacation, fly, shake people's hands, party it up, because nothing bad is going to happen. And then third, it's accepted as being self-evident. Well, yeah, we knew it all along. Um, maybe not knew all along, but but come on. Like, we know now, obviously, this is a big deal. And I think it's true for so many other things. Masks, the use of masks. Early on, pff, I mean, look at this guy over here wearing a mask. There's like, what, 10 cases, 10 confirmed cases, um, 15 Soon to be zero, probably. You know, it's my best Donald Trump impression. Paraphrase of what he said back in, in February. Um, you know, the number of cases here in the United States, it's ridiculed, right? That's violently opposed. Like uh, you had uh, the Surgeon General saying, stop buying masks to people, right? Stop buying them. A lot of people in the mainstream media, a lot of people just said, stop wearing masks, stop buying masks. They don't help unless you're a healthcare worker. They're not going to help you. They're not going to help slow the spread. They're not going to help you stop you from getting it, stop buying masks. And then all of a sudden it's like, well, actually, no, it's probably a good idea if everyone wears some sort of face covering, right? Save the fancy ones for the healthcare workers, but maybe we all should start wearing masks. You know, now this time around, it's this whole origin story of the coronavirus. And this is going to be much more drawn out, and we may never get a perfect conclusion to it. I'm not convinced either way yet at this point. However, early on, there was a lot of people saying that, hey, um, this started in the city of Wuhan, as far as we can tell, which bears some very close geographic um, um is very close, I guess, uh, proximity to this BSL-4, you know, biosafety level 4 lab, which are relatively uncommon. I don't know how many BSL-4 labs China has, probably quite a bit, but they're relatively uncommon. Um, th- this BSL-4 laboratory that was known to have been experimenting with bats and, and, and um, SARS-CoV viruses, etc., and it leaked. It leaked. Maybe not necessarily intentionally um, intentionally let out, but but leaked somehow through a scientist, through a lab work or whatever, into the population. It, that this whole wet market story is just a distraction. That's not how things happen. That, you know, and early on people said, no, that's that's not true at all. Um, this is just this came from bats, probably maybe pangolins, maybe some other. You know, but but it spread normally. You know, there was a. Um, article over in India. And I don't know the merits of this article in particular, this academic journal article or whatever, talking about, hey, this actually is some chunks of uh, genetic data that bears some resemblance to that of, of HIV, a chunk of genomic data or whatever, um, molecular structure to, to HIV. People said, no, like, take that down. This is grossly irresponsible. You're making this up. That's not true. You're, you're 
there's an error in your science, whatever, it's ridiculed. And then it moved into this violent opposition where, yeah, they were laughed off the stage and they had to kind of pull it from publication. Um, Zero Hedge, of course, is banned from Twitter for suggesting that, hey, maybe it originated in a lab. Well, well now, Fox News, I'll, I'll let you decide what the merits of Fox News are, but Fox News, not, not Silver Fortune, not Peak Prosperity, not Zero Hedge, but Fox News, a mainstream media source as well as the White House and the intelligence community, have been talking about the possibilities that, yeah, maybe this did originate from a lab. Now, is that actually the case? I'm not convinced either way yet. I've said, I think, from the beginning that, yeah, there's, there's a real distinct possibility of that. I think we should rule out. Now, now I, I get it. My knowledge of genomic sequencing, of virology, of, of all of that is, is minimal compared to, to an expert in the field. But... To just somehow say that there's no way it didn't come from a lab, that we should completely rule out that possibility, I was never willing to do that. I think that there's always a possibility, right? Maybe it just happened from animals. Maybe that's still the case. But there's always a possibility we should just rule it out. And when somebody says that, I think that they're being, A, maybe a little bit prideful, or B, they have some other agenda, Right, we, we see this other article over on Zero Hedge talking about a person that Facebook was using to debunk these said articles and statements. Turns out she worked at this lab and has collaborated with one of the you know head researchers on these types of viruses multiple times. I mean, the, like the epitome of call, conflict of interest, right? Um, so, so I do think you know we have to really question those types of expert opinions when they're so sure that there's no way it could have happened from a lab. However, I think what's more interesting than the truth of the matter, which we may never ultimately know, hopefully, but I, I don't know. I, my, the odds of trying to say that it escaped from their lab is low, but maybe, I don't know, maybe they will. You know, if, if the U.S. or other countries say, look, we have the intelligence, we've seen the internal communications within your own intelligence community about the fact that this has happened, that this has escaped, that this is from a lab, you come clean or we'll come clean for you, maybe China will come out and do it. But even if they don't, wow, does this really turn China into a scapegoat? To some extent, maybe they deserve it. Regardless if it's lab-borne or not, It uh, well, they dropped the ball on stopping the spread early on. They suppressed the truth. Right? They locked up doctors early on that were trying to talk about this new ARDS, this pneumonia illness that was sweeping through the, you know, the Hubei province. And then, you know, pretty quickly they, they changed their mind. In fact, you know, now there's stuff coming out that, Hey, guess what? You know, early on the communist party was talking about how severe this was and, and the actions that would have to be taken before they talked to the public about it. But and the time frame here is several, several days in terms of a pandemic spread several days is, is a, is a lifetime, very long time period, especially early on. Right. They dropped the ball. And so maybe, you know, the blame is, is, do for them. But what about geopolitically speaking? What is the fallout of this going to be from the Trump administration, from other countries, European countries and otherwise, against China? Countries that don't have a vested interest in China continuing to invest in their own economies, which by the way, I think is true for the US. We do actually have that vested interest. But does that mean a whole lot to Trump during a campaign year? Uh, or even if he you know, is reelected, does that mean a whole lot to him? It certainly didn't necessarily for the trade war and for, you know, to some extent the currency war. Does it mean this does it mean a whole lot this time around? I don't know. It's hard to say at this point in time. But um 
I think the possibility that that geopolitical conflict, whether it's trade war related, currency war, or or hot war related, I don't think we should rule that that out. Considering the loss of life from this, and and again going back to some of those other concepts about how you know geopolitical upheaval tends to occur during this type of time period, um, the geopolitical consequences of the world and and our intelligence agencies, whether it's the truth or not, laying the blame at the feet of China and, and their bioweapons research or whatever they want to claim it was, um, that's that has huge implications, right? That that would be akin to if the U.S. back in like 2002 said, well, actually, a lot of the a lot of the um, the facts, the the investigations that we've done into 9/11 suggest that a lot of these terrorists have closer ties to Saudi Arabia than they do to a lot of other, you know, Iran and other so-called enemies in the United States that, yes, they have ties to um, Al-Qaeda, but hey, guess what? Al-Qaeda and a lot of these terrorists, these hijackers, have very close ties to Saudi Arabia. Can you imagine if we did that back in 2002? That would have kind of reshaped the next 18 years a bit, you think, maybe, right? Considering the alignment of countries at that, yeah, at that point in time. But we didn't. We didn't do that. Um, could have. And this time around, it, regardless if it's the truth or not, I, I think we're maybe heading in that direction. The intelligence communities of the world are heading in that direction that maybe China should be the scapegoat for this. Maybe the intelligence is legit. Maybe not. I don't know. We may never know. But I think if it's treated as legit, you can't just do that and then move on with your lives. That'd be, again, akin to the United States saying Saudi Arabia has a lot of close ties in terms of funding and whatnot, and then just move on with things. No, that's not how things work. There's, there would be a, a, an uproar about that in the United States. Can you imagine? I mean, think of how angry people were back in 2001, 2002, post 9-11. They wanted revenge. They wanted blood. They wanted somebody to pay for what happened. Well, there's a lot more angry people this time around. A lot of people that have lost their jobs, lost their livelihood, lost their loved ones because of this virus. And they're going to be asking for potentially blood themselves. So as always, though, I'd like to thank every one of you for tuning in to today's podcast. Thank you from the bottom of my heart and God bless.